Hi everyone, so it's your favourite host, Alicia Latoya, and I'm back again on the Black Create Connect podcast. Welcome back. And today in the studio, we have with us someone who is actually very, very intelligent, accomplished, and now a supermodel, actually. <laughs> now a supermodel, like as of, as of today. <laughs> so I, I want to welcome Lee Chambers, who's an award-winning business psychologist, keynote speaker. He's a male ally, media contributor, wellbeing specialist. He's also the founder of Essentialized Workplace Wellbeing, which is an inclusive wellbeing agency um, that delivers strategy and training. And he's here today. He's been featured and seen on Vogue, Telegraph, you name it, Guardian, everything. So give it up, everyone. Let's welcome Lee to the studio. Welcome. That's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm loving the colours. Yeah, you got, you got to be vi- vibrant, you got to be bold, and you know what, you got to be memorable. And ain't no better way to do that than a bit of colour. Do you think colours have anything to do with um, someone's state of mind and their well-being and how they feel, or no? I'd say so, yeah. yeah? People want dress a certain way to feel a certain way. Mm. People want to portray a certain message. Okay. Uh, and quite often, you know, we see colours in our surroundings, you know, from a psychological and scientific perspective. You're all surrounded by different colours. They have different impacts on you. You know, cooler colours will normally de-stress you, de-stimulise you a bit. Uh, you know, things such as orange, it's very vibrant. It gets people's blood pressure raised a little bit, gets the heart beating a bit faster, mm. makes people more sociable and, you know, draws people in. And people love a bit of colour. We, we live in such a beige world, you they know. Do. They, no, we do. Like, <laughs> when you look around, the buildings are beige, the roads are beige, the bridges are... Everything is just plain. And I notice, whenever I've actually gone out to events and I've worn something that's been, been spicy or my hair's been red or something, it's always, I love your hair. Yep. Stopping you just for conversation. It opens up conversations, right? Yeah. And for me, it's like, I'm, I'm a bit socially awkward, I would say, honestly. And what this does is it means people come and introduce themselves to me and like, oh, love your glasses. Oh, nice, you know, love the blazer. Yeah. Oh, love the shoes. And you're like, bang, introduction done. Let's talk. That's, that's it. Exactly. So it helps a lot for you to kind of get out there. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling really good. You yeah. know, there's a lot going on. It's been a busy few days. Uh, but you know, I get up every morning doing new, interesting things, going out making an impact. And yeah, I really, I'm in a place where I love what I do. I love the people I do it with. I love the impact that I'm making. Yeah. And you know, when, we, when people talk about success, I feel like that's what it is. When you actually get up in the morning and you know you're going to go and do something great, and you actually feel energised to go and do that. Yeah, exactly. And it's good, it's good that you're in a position where you can do something that you love and clearly that you're passionate about as well. Mm-hmm. And I want to get onto your journey yeah. very shortly because I always like to touch on people's journeys. Um, but you... There's something that I want to ask you about. And if you're uncomfortable answering mm-hmm. this, then just tell me. Yep. So I'm, I was very intrigued with your profile, probably more so than a lot of my other guests because you're very, you're intersectional. Mm-hmm. Yep. Are you happy to talk about that? Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just talk to us about how you're intersectional, yep. how it, whatever's comfortable for you. Mm-hmm. And um, just, and I'll kind of ask you follow-up questions based on that. So feel free to... Yeah, so... Obviously, I kind of look at intersectionality, you know, across different different profiles and spectrums. Mm. And for me, you know, I'm from a low socioeconomic background. I grew up on a council estate. I'm autistic, so I'm neurodivergent. Manage a chronic illness, which kind of has been part of my journey, but actually has taught me quite a lot about some of the barriers and challenges, but also how I've overcome those. And, you know, being part of the black community, you know, when you are black and disabled, 
it's different. You know, you look at the typical black male kind of archetype, stereotype, where, you know, being autistic kind of sits quite far away from that at times. Mm. You know, I was that kid where I was hanging out with my cousins and stuff, and I'd be there thinking about how I'm going to take over this world, playing on a video game. They're literally thinking about taking over the world in a slightly different way. So it's been an interesting journey, and for me, you know, we kind of look at some aspects around disability, for example. Mm. It's so often being driven by those who are pretty privileged in every other area apart from disability. Mm. So I'm constantly, you know, banging that drum, whether it's in well-being, whether it's in inclusion, you know, mm. to actually look at things intersectionally because nobody is just one thing. Yeah. And when you get to meet people and you unpack that together, you realise that, you know, people might look really privileged on the surface, mm. but actually they sit in a number of different areas of lesser privilege. Mm. And for me, you know, I got an autism diagnosis two years ago. Two years ago you got diagnosed? Yeah, wow. I've always, known, I've always known I've been different because I think differently, How? I see the world differently, you know, I communicate a bit differently. And so I've always known ever since I was a little kid, I was a bit but, different. But, but so, so, so what, what made you want to get, um, I guess, checked out and di- you got diagnosed a couple of years ago. How did that come about? Yeah, so I mean, Interestingly, this is a story that so often happens, especially for members of our community, mm. is when one of your children goes through the process. Mm. So my son went through the autism diagnosis process uh, and we were, you know, me and my wife were sat with the educational psychologist because, you know, the ed site was doing an assessment with our son. Mm. And then he did parental interviews afterwards. Mm. So kind of sat us down and spoke to us. And right at the end of that, he kind of, as we're leaving the room, he just like tapped me on the shoulder and said, Lee, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I was like, "Really?" I know what he's saying. Like in, in, a, in just in a parental interview, he's picked up that I'm pro- I probably am. And I know, I know I'm different. And then I thought, you yeah. know what? I'm 36. Do I want to go and do I want to go and pursue that? And then I thought to myself, well, actually, my son's now on that journey. Yeah. If I can go on that journey with my son. Exactly. Uh, that actually to show him that, you know, I've had my struggles as well. Uh, and it's not just your dad saying, oh, yeah. yeah, it'll be fine. But your dad's actually been up and he's been down and he's been through this. And even though me and my son, you know, there's a few differences. Yeah. Uh, just being on his autism journey with him mm. is quite powerful because he's kind of, you know, seen some of the, he's seen some of the things that I've done over the years. He's yeah. now, you know, 10 and he's, you know, going to secondary school next year. And I know the transition is going to be hard for him like it was for me. But I can sit there and, you know, he knows that I'm on the journey with him more than just just words but actually have lived it as well the thing is it's interesting that you kind of went through life you knowing internally Mm -hmm. that you're autistic but not getting a sort of diagnosis which then would feed into potentially in the workplace where you might have signs and symptoms or face barriers in doing things in in the way that everybody else would do do it but you haven't got evidence that you need the support Right. Yeah. So where in those situations, because I think there's a lot of neurodiverse adults that are undiagnosed. I think I'm undiagnosed ADHD. Not even I think I 100% know. You believe. (laughs) Like I 100% know I'm undiagnosed ADHD. Right. Now, for individuals that I feel like they're undiagnosed. What should what process should I go through? Because I had a meeting the other day with um, a, a mental health specialist from the NHS. I said that it takes, I'll be on the waiting list for a year. Yeah, at least. It, so, so it's, Before I even get tested. Yeah, it's such a challenge at the minute because the awareness has grown. Yeah. I mean, we've, got to, we've got to take it and strip it all the way back, Alicia. So basically we have very little data. There's been very little research 
on how any neurodivergent conditions present in the black community. Mm. There hasn't been any research in the UK, as far as I'm aware. There's At been a all. bit in the US. Uh, but, but then it, it's when you realise that there wasn't any research on women until about five years ago. What, women being neurodiverse? Yeah. Every wow, research project was done on white males. And almost all exclusively until about 10 years ago on white boys. So everything that's been built around, that we know around autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, is, is all built, built off little white boys who were generally privileged enough for the parents to say, how can we help them? Yeah. And they ended up in all the research projects. So what we see today is these conditions are actually built off white boys. That's actually crazy. So we don't think about it like that. No, and that means that women are underdiagnosed. Yeah. You know, people in communities of colour are underdiagnosed. Exactly. Because firstly, they just don't see it. Like people think autism, they think like Rain Man, or they think like someone yeah. who, who's non-verbal, but they just imagine like a white boy because that's how it's been portrayed yeah, in media so right. over so many years. So we're only just starting to see, understand how it manifests in women, which yeah. can be a bit different. They can be more effective at masking. They can, you know, potentially manage some of the aspects a bit better. Mm. But there's now so many people realising and going mm. searching that the waiting lists are massive. Yeah. And again, that ends up being a place of privilege. Those who can pay to go private get to jump the list. Exactly. But not everyone can. Exactly. And we're in a real challenging position mm. because all of a sudden the awareness has increased, but mm. the access to the services, which hasn't been properly funded for years mm. and hasn't been properly scaled, mm. means that now we've got lots and lots of people aware going seeking support mm. and the systems and structures aren't there mm. and that's going to take time to get them to a place yeah. so the minute people are sat on waiting list struggling and the truth is getting a diagnosis some people are like well i don't want to that's fine but it does help you and support you getting support you might need in education or in the workplace yeah that's and that's where i, I kind of stuck a pin actually because I was thinking is it worth waiting a year if I know that I actually do have ADHD because I've taken those of online tests I show all the symptoms um is it better for me to just manage it and, and figure out ways because that's what I'm doing now I've had to adjust my lifestyle yep. to manage how it is and it, and it works um but then actually there is value in getting diagnosis because like like you said I'll then get access to support I'll then say I've officially been di been diagnosed I'm not just speculating as well so, and that somehow carries more weight in conversations with employers and, and so forth, right? Yeah, and for some people, they want, they want that structure to know. Like, when I got diagnosed, I felt, like, partially liberated, like, really? free. Like, like, free, like... But, but also partially frightened, because okay. I had to, like, go back and explore, like, my past memories, some of the difficulties I've had, some of the challenges, and kind of give myself some acceptance for those. Because you can be hard on yourself. Yeah. And you can reflect back on some of the things that didn't go well. Yeah. Like, I suppose for me, I've been running businesses for 15 years. Yeah. And a big part of that is I went out into the corporate world and it was tough. Tough, Because yeah. I was kind of facing the microaggressions and the barriers of being black in the workplace. Yeah. But also not thinking typically either. And exactly. most corporate organisations, especially 15 years ago when I started my career, yeah. there was no... In fact, you know, you can't just say, I've always known I'm autistic. No, I've always known I'm different. Yeah. So I've always known I'm like wired differently and yeah, my yeah. brain thinks and sees things in a different way and other people looking at me like, what the, yeah. what the hell does he mean? <laughs> That's how I feel so, as well, it's so, weird, yeah. Yeah, but, so I've always been a little bit of a, a misfit in that way, right? Yeah. I've used that to my advantage in, in my life as well because thinking differently can you know really open up a world of colour for those who see things in black and white, right? Mm. But I've always known that different. But 
no one told me or I didn't know anything. I probably didn't even hear the word autism until I was like 18, 19 at university. Really? Because people don't talk about it in our communities. Because wow. there's, there's a lot of reasons, to be honest. There's a lot yeah. of mistrust in, 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 in the medical system because, you know, there's so much yeah, stigma in there. They've, they've failed us institutionally, yeah. if we're honest. And there's a lot of racism. And, yeah, but even down to, you know, autism has close ties to learning disabilities. Obviously, some autistic individuals do and will be classed as having a learning disability because of how much it impacts their ability to learn. Mm in what is a very typical system anyway, not really designed for us, but that's a whole other conversation. Mm. But there's a legacy of, you know, schools out in the middle of nowhere where a lot of black and Asian kids got shipped off to. Here in the UK in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And you know what? They were shipped off to those schools. They weren't taught properly. They weren't, mm. you know, there's a legacy of not wanting to speak about these things in our community mm. because of some of the things that have happened to us in the past. And it starts to feel like just another barrier we have to climb over yeah. and another validation we have to do. Right, yeah. uh, so it, it's, it's tough, but, you know, I've been quite clear over these past two years. I've, I've said, you know what? I'm going to go out there and be loud and proud about it because we do need to have these conversations. Mm. And actually, you know, we don't need to be hiding people away who are black and autistic or black and have ADHD or black and dyslexic. Exactly. Because actually, they've got two ways to look at the world differently. Mm. And that is powerful. Let's get those voices amplified. Exactly, exactly. And that's another thing as well. If this dyslexia, I, I, I was making so many mistakes at work and I actually was put in a performance plan because of it. And I didn't didn't realise, and that was just for spelling errors or just for putting two full stops in a sentence or just small things that I didn't see. Yeah. And I realised that, oh, I'm dyslexic. And then lo and behold, so is my dad and so is my sister and, you know, and so forth. But I want to um, get onto your journey and talk yeah. about your, your journey overall. But just, just for clarity and to have a, a definition, I know autism um, is a wide spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. FYI, this is my ADHD again. I haven't forgotten about your chronic illness, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But as a back pocket, but so autism, there's there's, there's a big spectrum of autism. Yep. Do you mind just giving us like an overview of what autism is and how generally it it might show up, it might impact you, and then we'll talk a bit deeper about your journey um, yeah. overall. Yeah. So I think the best way to look at it is, you know, autism is framed as a spectrum, but it's not like one side to the other. It's more like a, it's more like circle. a circle, Got you. and you kind of you're in you're in you in the middle point, and there's a basically kind of autism as a diagnosis because you know, we've got issues with how it's diagnosed and the criteria that's used because it's all been built off white boys, right? Mm, but yeah. it very much focuses on communication, socialization, you know, ways to, ways to think, uh, and kind of sensory challenges as well. So what you'll find is, generally speaking, you know, an artistic individual will have things that are stronger or more challenging than the typical person. So they might have really kind of acute sensory aspects. So they might have an incredibly powerful sense of smell or really Really? struggle with bright lighting or really struggle with acoustics and noise. So tend to have either, either really enhanced or potentially like decreased senses towards things. Right, uh, some autistic people have things such as uh, interoception, which is like your internal bodily feelings, like feeling hungry, feeling pain. For some autistic individuals, those are really high. For some, the law. And it's like, basically, a big part of autism is, you know, communication styles, thinking styles, thinking differently. Um, you know, there's a lot to it, basically. Uh, but when it comes down to it, fundamentally, autism looks at senses, it looks at socialisation, it looks at communication, it looks at the way people think. Right, and that's, that's obviously, it. you know, we build a world around a typical person. Mm. 
but I think the way I like to unpack it is if you look at it typically how that plays out in life an autistic individual will have what's known as a spiky profile so they might be absolutely amazing at some things more you know really high and it's like people refer to it as like wow that's like a superpower don't always like that term because it, it can be a bit like it can sometimes ignore the fact that autistic individuals have real challenges mm. and if you superpower it's making you think that they are amazing when actually it doesn't showcase the reality mm. but those skills tend to be really far above mm. if, if you're basically imagining uh you know you've got like a graph and a normal person is like a little bit up a little bit down on different things you know such as like time management uh communication mm. uh you know kind of like meeting deadlines organizing tasks recognizing patterns and a normal person will be like they'll, they'll be better at some than others an autistic individual has real big strengths, but then real big challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there will be some things that they really, really struggle with. And if you can, you know, get sometimes a bit of support with those things, yeah. it makes a big difference because then they have more time to do the things they're incredibly strong at, yeah. way above the general population. So what, so what would you say that, if you're happy speaking about it, what you're really, really great at, and you know is your identified strengths, I mean, speaking is yep. obviously one of them, mm-hmm. um, and then what some of the things that you've struggled with... Um, if you don't mind speaking about Yeah, so I think some of the things I'm really strong at is for, firstly recognising patterns. So if you put something in front of me, I will see, I won't see the little things, I'll see the patterns. So mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, a way to think about it is in, in my school, I did my maths GCSE, right? I was one of only two kids to see the pattern, the calculus patterns in the coursework. Um, so I'm good at seeing patterns and connecting and joining dots. Uh, so I'm really good at taking like a concept from science and a concept from creative and actually joining them where people just don't see where they join. Uh, really? It means that I'm not the best at paying attention to details at things sometimes, but I can join those dots. Uh, another thing is being able to turn something into like visual speech. So I'm able to like, I'm really strong with metaphors, for example. I'll explain how something's working in my head and quite often it's a picture. But then I'll turn that picture into some words and create a picture in someone else's head. So it's like, it's, it's an ability to, for me, and what it helps me to do is take like really like high level scientific research and turn it into someone, someone on the street will understand. And that's why I end up on the news and stuff because I can look at a research paper, read all this like, and think, geez, like, unless you're a professor, this don't make any sense. But then actually pull it down and talk to someone who isn't a scientist yeah. and turn it into something simple. So I'm good at making the complex simple, which is really? which is you know another strength. But things I struggle with, like I'm not very organised, okay. um, and you know I have a little bit of support with that. I have also practiced to get a little bit better at that. But I am you know I will miss WhatsApp messages, for example, and people will think, well, where's he gone? And and, and then I'll, it'll pop back like six weeks later that I've not replied. Um, yeah. luckily people know me but little things like that if I like my working memory isn't good sometimes so if you tell me like to do four things I'll go and do one and, be like, what am I doing again? and then I'll, I'll forgot the other ones and it's like someone had asked me right can you go upstairs and get this but on the way can you just check that and then you know before you go upstairs could you just cons- basically the first the, what you told me to go upstairs and go and get I'll do but I'll forget to check the thing that I was supposed to check when I was going upstairs and I'll forget the thing you just told me to do before I went upstairs and it's like, so I've kind of had to think and start to build my life around some of those struggles. Uh, but just another thing for me is quite literal in how I see stuff, right? So if someone tells me to do something, 
literally, I'll go and do it literally, even if that's not what they meant. Mm. So, you know, struggle to think of examples off the top of my head. But, but But if someone says, you know, can you go and do something? I'll go and do it. But I'll do it how I perceive that they're said. And quite often people don't, don't say exactly what they want me to do. Uh, I think probably a great way to describe it is if someone says, someone says to me, Lee, can you get this document over? It's urgent. In my head, I'll be thinking, right, it's urgent, right. I'll drop everything else. I'll do it now. What they didn't say, they didn't give clarity. They didn't said, they didn't say, you know, can you get this back to me ASAP? Because ASAP is another one, like as soon as possible. Yeah, to me, like that means like right now. now. Yeah. What they actually meant was the client's been asking for it and I need it next week. So really clear on the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. how, when. Yeah. Like I need that clarity. Yeah. And when things are really ambiguous, I'll attach my own thoughts to that. Yeah. So that can end up with miscommunication and people just like, you know, then being like, well, why did you not do that? It's like, we well, said that was urgent. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, I, so I didn't do that. Yeah, I so I've had lots yeah. of conversations over the years about, you know, people being really clear, like yeah. how, what, when. Like, how do you want me to do it? What do you want me to do? And when do you want it? And don't say something fluffy like ASAP. Say, in the next two hours or by the end of Thursday. Like Be specific with time. Specific, yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, I'll just perceive it how I perceive it. Yeah. Which is usually stronger, as in urgent, do it now. Yeah, yeah. Than you actually meant next week. <laughs> That's a really good example. I didn't really think about that as, as something. And because, to be honest, I mean... I've learned as well that I have to, whenever I, before early in my career, I used to just take on work and do just act on things and try to do loads of things at the same time. But now I always say, um, give, give me context on why you need this um, by a certain date, when do you need yeah. it? And then I then decide for my priorities and what I need to do. And I say, okay, based on what I have, got, what's going on, this is when it can get, when it can get done. Is that, is that okay for you? Yeah. Like that's like, that's how I've learned to work now and really assess because if you need it, say you did need it in the next hour, if I physically can't do it, mm-hmm. then what? Yeah. Like, like if I physically can't, because sometimes it's, it's overwhelming, especially if you're neurodiverse, yep. you get, I get so stressed out if I can't meet a deadline mm-hmm. and I will end up be do- doing so many different things at, at the same time. Do you find yourself doing that as well? Yeah. Really? So I, I'm, I can get distracted quite easily. So, so I've had to, pra- I've had to practice yeah. that, but also like I, I enjoy variety yeah. and doing a lot of different projects at the same time. Yeah. There's a, there's a level of enjoyment in that, but also sometimes there's a level of complete organized chaos. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's about having people around you just to pick up some of those, some of those glass balls that you drop in. Yeah. Because, you know, struggle, always struggle a little bit for forgiveness around that. Exactly. And, and you know, that self-forgiveness piece, that's something I've, I've worked on as well. And I think yeah. for me, it's really important because I've continued to work on myself, right? Yeah. I've not sat there and said, I'm autistic, I'm just going to accept this. I've continued to work on myself, but I've got that, you know, like I said earlier, for more forgiveness and more acceptance. That are some things I'm just never really going to be that good at. Yeah, and exactly. Other people are amazing at them, really enjoy it, and just bring them on the journey with you. And that's the beauty of having your own business and being able to manage your own schedule a lot more yeah. than being in a corporate organization where you're just one dimension and everything gets you know done to you exactly. rather than you doing it because you know you can control those variables. Exactly, and that's why I say to organizations, um, it's really important for them to look at when they're rehiring a role 
look at the key outcomes of what that role is. Don't look at how that needs to get done because the how can be done in 10 different ways. You know, the, the timings of how something can be done, the task can be completely different, but the outcome can still be there. Or it still might be a slightly different outcome, might, might be better. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that um, some autistic people that I know personally as well, overachievers mm-hmm, yeah. like they, they they're just excellent like what they're good at is like fantastic and yeah. excellent at and yeah do you like do you would yeah. you agree with that yeah so quite often we have really strong interests yeah and those strong interests are things we're incredibly passionate about that we you know we will sit we'll spend so much more time researching them than the typical person yeah what we'll also do is we'll go really deep on that so you know a lot of people have like a good breadth of knowledge but they don't go so deep, deep yeah. we go really deep into something that we're passionate about yeah. and one of the reasons I do what I do is I've always been deeply passionate about people and why people do what they do so ever since I was a kid I'd look at people and think well, why did they do that don't make any sense you know why are those adults talking in that way why why did he or she say that yeah. so I've always been interested in people and that means that you know I've been willing to go deep into the research and think about how people work and part of that was helping me understand how I could talk to other people because I really struggled with that when I was younger mm. uh, but it's that curiosity mm. you know a lot of us are really curious and we want to know how things work mm. and you know for me a big part of it is like a driver for social justice exactly I was always that kid who was like look stop bullying that kid or I'll like sort you out um got me into plenty got me into as much trouble as it did great conversations right yeah. but, but fundamentally we have deep interests and we're generally really driven if we feel we're in an s- environment that supports us yeah yeah exactly that's what i've noticed anyway from um like in, in general i mean um i'll get into later on about what you do for organizations and everything but i i want to go back into your journey mm-hmm. so the start of lee chambers's journey let's talk about that and feel free to start at any comfortable point for you yeah, so I was born in Bolton, the northwest, okay. in 1985. Uh, not much of a black community up there, just a few families. Uh, but my dad, you know, and my mum re- were teenagers when they had me, so I was a bit of a surprise. Uh, so yeah, my dad's my dad's Jamaican. Okay. My mum had been in care. Um, okay. So you know, they were they were kind of. I came into the world and they were kind of still working out what the world meant for them. Mm. Uh, but they, you know, they worked really hard, gave me a work ethic. Uh, I remember times when, you know, my dad was working 12-hour shifts. My mum was working three jobs, you know, to keep a roof over our head, to give us opportunity uh, to get a better life for me and my younger brothers, who are four and a half and seven years younger than I am. Wow. Um, Sorry, question on that. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask a question or do you need yeah, to, is jump it easier in. for you to just... Jump in. Okay. So when your mum was working three jobs and your dad was working 12 hours on end, how old were you at the time? Yeah. And what impact did that have on your upbringing I guess yeah so I remember that I was seven eight around that age um basically it meant that I spent some time with my grandparents okay and you know got the influences from them okay uh, it meant that I did a little bit of self-management uh and that's the my mum's maternity periods with my brothers kind of helped forge those bonds but what it did do for me is it made me incredibly passionate about how important working was to make a difference and to be able to, you know, create a better life and opportunities, but also meant that when I became a father, I didn't want to be working 12-hour shifts. I didn't want to be working free jobs. I wanted to be around my kids. And I want, And it left me with a bit of a legacy of thinking, you know, I'm really grateful that my mum and dad worked so hard to, you know, get off the estate, to get into a better place, to send me to a better school. But 
I wish I'd have been around a bit more when I was younger. Mm. And that's then built into my journey and changed my decisions around, you know, when my children were born, just how much time I spent with them. Right, because you, because you realise that that is actually mm-hmm. invaluable. Like, the, And I, I agree with you because you're not going to get that time back. Oh, hell no. Yeah. And I think they grew up in Thatcher's Britain, right, where it's all about social mobility, mm. all about, you know, going, chasing, grafting, and making stuff happen. So I don't blame them for that. Because they were only young and they were trying to set a good example mm. with what they knew. Mm. And obviously, you know, when you come from an immigrant background, you know, it was drummed in from my dad, work hard. You know, you've got an opportunity in the UK. Work hard. Work yeah. hard. Make something of yourself. Yeah. The odds will always be against you, but if you work hard, you'll shine. You'll yeah. build a life and you'll, you know, you'll do great things. Mm. So they just lived their own parents' advice, right? Mm. So I don't blame my parents in any way. But that experience of being younger and not always seeing them as much as I might want to meant that actually, for me, you know, it made me think, I, I don't want that for, for yeah. a relationship for me and my own kids. Yeah. So I then shaped my life around that. I love that. I really, really love that. So when you were younger, who and what inspired you? What what did you gravitate towards? What, what were your interests? Um, yeah. Just talk to us about that. So, I mean, I was quite academic. As in, like, I could do decent at school without much effort. Mm. Uh, so that helped me to kind of fly under the radar. Um, and, you know, I like I liked to watch sports, but I wasn't massively sporty. Um, but I lived in, like, a majority white area and had a majority white friendship circle. Apart from the, you know, like I said earlier, there's only a few black families in Bolton. I used to go and hang about with my cousins and we we're all kind of related as well because uh, there's only a few, you know, black families moved up there mm. and settled there. Um, so I kind of had that like dual life growing up, like majority white and then hanging about my cousins, mm. like very different kind of conversations. Uh, but no, I was always quite, you know, basically I'm, I'm from that generation as well, you know, do good at school, go to uni, go and get a profession, build yeah. a career, hit some life milestones happily ever after. So I kind of, you know, went on that path. I mean, I did quite well at school, got to college didn't do so well at college because again you have to start to apply yourself and in college you find a whole world of other distractions to go and do yeah. uh, but I became the first one in my family to go to uni uh, which was like it was it was seen as a really good thing you know like go and set a good example to your brothers to the community it's also a lot of pressure I went to uni and after one and a half years I ended up dropping out struggle with my mental health just really I, again I suppose in a lot of ways Alicia, what contributed to it yeah so you know as a young black man like, didn't really know how to express my emotions, you know, didn't, not really very self-aware, but I was, you know, kind of looking out, I suppose I looked inwards, right, and tried to understand what I was going to become. Mm. Felt a lot of pressure to be an example, mm. wasn't really applying myself that well in my studies, mm. having to work a job to fund and be able to live there, and obviously, you know, that puts quite a bit of strain on you, mm. uh, but I just found I was struggling to look after myself a little bit, living, reflecting back, I was probably doing a bit too much mm. and being artistic, I started to burn out like that, which has definitely impacted mm. how I felt. But ultimately, I started to look inside myself. I couldn't find the answers. Didn't know what I wanted to be, you know, didn't really know how to express those emotions. So then you look outwards, right? You look out for some inspiration. And I thought, you know what, Lee, what, what, what are you? A bit scientific, a bit entrepreneurial, a bit of a thinker, a bit of a philosopher. Look out for some black examples. Mm. There wasn't any. You don't find any? Well, no. 
I mean, I reflect. I, I look. I looked out to the world, and this is obviously pre, pre YouTube and pre social media. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but you realise, like, black business people in the UK twenty years ago couldn't find any. You're right. Black black scientists, a few, like none in psychology. Black black philosophers, well, they just got scrubbed out of history. So so I kind of looked out and thought, who could be like a role model? Who could be a mentor? I looked at it and I was like, I can't see anyone who looks like me doing the things that I want to do. Like, what are my chances? And I just felt like I just felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't want to become... The only role models I could see were footballers, rappers, actors, and that wasn't me. And, and you wanted to see someone like you doing something yeah. for you to feel like it's attainable, right? Yeah, I've yeah. always feel like it's attainable. And I wanted to think... I could see the path that they'd taken. Exactly. I could see the struggles that they'd had. And relate to them. And that could that could mean that I, yeah, I am struggling now and there's a reason why. And I didn't understand a lot of the things that I do today about the reasons why I was struggling, right? And also I was doing a bit of psychology in my degree and I was like, I need to be able to fix my head because I'm studying about it, but I'm struggling to use the toolkit. Like, I feel even more myself. of a fraud. Yeah. So I basically locked myself in my dorm and then got extracted by security and got taken home. So right. I got in a bad place. But you lock yourself in your, in your door. Yeah, so I started avoiding things, avoiding the groups, avoiding my friends, and obviously it was a bit easier when we were back on like Nokia's and se- sensible phones. Yeah. Uh, then I stopped going to work, and then I stopped going to uni. That sounds like work. depression. Well, ultimately, you know, I would go, I would go and have therapy eleven years after that. So long it took me to go and have therapy. So. What actual events led to that? Just to unpick it a mm-hmm. little bit deeper. Yeah. What? Because that's that's a that's a lot. How long did you lock yourself in, in a room and not stop working? Like, how did you do that for? Yeah. So I was in in that room for a week. You didn't I come out for a week. Didn't come out for a week. Did you not eat? So I'd I'd purposely gone and hoarded like dried food that I could eat because you planned to, to do yeah, that. Yeah. I just I just not I just noticed myself gradually avoiding avoiding avoiding. And I started to take actions to just avoid. Basically, I felt like I put my head in the sand. I just, I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't want to speak to anyone. Why? What What led it's, to that? Yeah, so I think it was avoiding feeling like I couldn't take on the world. Right. Like, I, it was easier to avoid things because I felt like I just didn't know. And, right. you know, where does that come from? You know, one elements of perfectionism that kind of come from, again, being black, high standard, discipline being artistic you know yeah like I wanted to know and I didn't know and I felt like I felt it made me feel like I didn't have meaning didn't have purpose didn't know why I was here and then that just it was easier to avoid things than it was to face the reality to face the reality that I didn't know and that's hard that must have been difficult because you obviously were undiagnosed at the time Mm -hmm. and so you just felt like Am I not capable enough of doing yeah. these things? What what specific things were you struggling with? Was it like your workload or being able to socialise or yeah, so like, like what was it? Well, the thing is, I went to uni and threw myself into everything. Okay. And kind of like took that approach, like big city, go and like do everything, yeah. and I think that did too much. So I started to burn out and lost enjoyment for things, and you know, lost lost. So you should lost, taste yourself, basically. Yeah, yeah, but I lost a sense of who I was. I didn't know. Like I'd gone to the city, I'd tried lots of new things, I'd, you know, tried to build a new friendship group, started to struggle a bit socially, struggling a bit with my studies, to be honest, just because it's such a transition into university in a second year and suddenly things get things get really difficult. And also in some ways I'd just I'd been able to coast through education until that point. Then things got hard. And I was working alongside that in the NHS, you know, and having to walk to work 
every day after after my you know kind of tutorials and lectures so I was doing a lot I was trying to support myself I was trying to live independently which I started to struggle with you know I started off and I was like oh yeah I'll do a bit of cooking you know I'll do a bit of cleaning I gradually as I got more and more you know stressed and struggling with things just started to drop doing that and started to not look after myself and started to eat poorly and then that just it just creates a big spiral of things so there was there's numerous different things I felt a lot of pressure to I was I knew my studies were going to be up in a few years and I need to know, I need to be confident going into the workplace knowing what I was going to become because the idea of, you know, go to uni, do well, you know, get a first, maybe a 2-2, yeah. you know, maybe a 2-1 and go and get a good job, right? Yeah. And I was at that point thinking, I've got like a year until I'm looking at like grad schemes and stuff like that and I need to have my shit together. Mm. Otherwise, I'm not going to make it. So that's, start, that's, what you th- that's what you thought at the time. Yeah, yeah because again, you just couldn't see it, could you? Yeah, and even yeah. though I didn't know like how much like internalized racism I had back then, and all you know, really, cause, go on, because I've, I've grown up in like majority white environment. What was that like? So what what was it like for you? Because you said that a lot of I guess some of your family were even white. Yep. Is, well, evidently because because mm-hmm. you're mixed race, um, and then obviously you grew up in a predominantly white area. So what was that side like for you as well? Yeah, it was interesting because the truth is, some, you weren't black enough, but also you weren't you weren't white. You were white. So you spent your life in some ways an advantage, right? So I was I was juggling two cultures. How? What does that What does that mean? So it means that you you basically you're in a world where you're on the fence, and one culture's over one side and the other culture's over the other, and that can be an advantage because you see two cultures playing out and you see the differences, and it helps you understand how two cultures can live side by side, but also gives you an oversight into how to work in between diverse groups. That can be a real advantage, mm. but also it can be a real challenge because you're on that fence, right? Mm. You're never truly over there. You're never truly over there, and actually, sometimes you can feel, well, well who that, who the hell am I? Because I'm like, I'm overed by one side, I'm overed by the other, and I'm just, you know, how many people is there like me? And like, you mm. know, back then, you know, we were half caste, we were dual heritage, we were never half a person. Yeah. But sometimes you felt like you had one foot in one camp, one foot in the other, and never were you actually stood some, with someone whose identity was exactly the same as yours. Add that to being autistic as well. And I sometimes found myself like stuck in that middle, not really with anyone else, just as... Feeling a, alone. A, yeah, feeling yeah. alone. And that didn't help, because that's how I felt when I went to university. And suddenly I was surrounded by diversity, right? People from all different parts of the world, but still felt like I was on my own. Yeah, because so that and that must make you feel like you're more alone, even being in a more diverse environment and realizing, oh, I still don't have anyone that's exactly like me, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure there's a journey that we'll talk about shortly, of as to how you kind of built your confidence and realize you you're you're enough how you are. But one thing I like to t- touch upon actually, you mentioned the mixed race, um, I guess difficulties. Every single mixed race individual that. I've spoken to down to yesterday I had a conversation with someone that I know has the exact same struggle because and and I'm not mixed race so mm-hmm. I will never fully understand but from from an outside perspective perspective I get it because there is the thing of I'm not fully fully black mm-hmm. so how much of the quote-unquote struggle can I claim or you yep. know or how much of the history can I really connect to mm-hmm. and then there's the I'm not white either so yep. That I, I don't I don't have white privilege. I don't experience that. I can still experience racism. So just a question surrounding that. What is the 
I guess, a solution for, for others out there that are mixed race, that are struggling with their identity at the moment and how they how it connects to black culture. What what would you say is, is kind of best for them? How, like to, like how, how should they best identify? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, what I would suggest is reading a book called Mixed Other by Natalie. By Natalie. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's a great starting point. I mean, what I would say is I found kind of peace in my identity over the years by kind of self-acceptance and forgiveness of who I am mm. and realised that fundamentally everyone is unique despite their own characteristics, right? And realised that actually I'm never going to be white passing, never. And actually, I am closer to, you know, the black community and there's an acceptance there. And yeah, we still look at sometimes our own internalised racism towards the black community. And, you know, like there's colorism that exists within our own community, right? Mm. And, you know, modern beauty standards make, you know, the closer you pass to whiteness, the better. Mm. And all sorts of other crazy stuff that we're having to try and unpack. Uh, but for me, it's about finding that place and realising that actually you will face some of those systemic barriers because you don't yeah. pass for being white yeah. and you won't have a lot of that privilege. But you might have, you know, some of, the, for some mixed race people, they have, you know, really different challenges. Um, and actually, you know, it's about unpeeling it back, thinking about who you are and how you can best show up in the world. Uh, but really starting to, you know, forgive yourself a little bit, mm. understanding that your ability to kind of exist within two cultures mm. is actually give you some skills mm. that could be valuable for your future. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, you know, there are more ways to find people nowadays, especially within mixed race communities. Yeah. You know, you can find people who have had a similar journey to yourself. You can talk about it. You can feel like you're not on your own because the truth is you're never on your own. Yeah. There's, there's billions of people on this planet. Yeah. You know, find, find, find people who, who get it. Find people you can speak about it with. Exactly. You know, read the read the people who've journeyed their stories and shared their things because we live in a world now where that information is there. Exactly. Well, do you know what? Even as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, even people that appear to be the same. So I'm a Jamaican black girl, even another Jamaican black girl from London. We're still different. Mm -hmm. Like we're actually still very different. We have differences in in our personalities, in our style and approaches, maybe how we speak, even though we might be able to relate on particular things, there's n you're never going to find someone in the world that you're 100% like because you're 100% unique, right? So that's that's also another area of peace that I've had to come to yeah. myself. But on the more of the, um, I guess, the interesting side of things, looking at both generally white culture that you've seen, because again, white culture can be a massive spectrum yeah. and so can black culture. What are some of the key differences you've seen in, in the culture? And where would you say are the, the beautiful things that work really well together and like mix in both cultures? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually. Mm. And I've probably not spent that much time thinking about it. It's as okay. I probably should have. Take, take a time. Um, but I, I think that for me, obviously, I grew up around generally working class white people because of where we lived. Right. So I've never really had much contact time with that, you know, middle to upper class white people. So, you know, there were some of those kind of similar struggles in, in white working class communities, right? Yeah. There is a work ethic and a graph to try and do better. You know, there is, you know, kind of elements where they kind of see the world and actually understand that there's barriers and challenges. Uh, that's where some of my, you know, ambition and drive comes from. Because mm. in those working class communities, people are willing to put a shift in. Mm. People are willing to, you know, try and try and find ways to develop themselves personally. And, you know, quite often, you know, people don't have very much. 
So they are, you know, focused on trying to get the best what they can, mm. sometimes out of very little. Mm. Um, obviously, in the black community, it, you know, it's just so much colour and so much vibrance. And it's about bringing those aspects. And, you know, I feel like today I'm like, I feel like I'm dressed like, like some ivory coast roots right here. <laughs> um, that, that Representing the culture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just need some patterns in there. Yeah, exactly. African fruit, yeah. You know, and, and it's like, for me, it's like thinking, you know, what, what have I taken from, you know, some, some, some of the black community? Taking that kind of audaciousness to go and try things. Yeah. That, that ability to kind of really take a, like a multicultural, multi-intersection approach to life. Yeah. Uh, but also how to understand and again, appreciate those aspects of being, you know, sometimes the only person in the room. And, you know, that gives you a really interesting oversight. It can, it can feel pretty difficult yeah. and you don't see yourself in that room I can but, it, but it can also help you think about how you overcome adversity mm. because you know the black community's faced a hell of a lot of challenges mm. uh sometimes we come together sometimes we don't come together enough mm. uh but for every aspect across that you know you kind of when you when you have to navigate two cultures you learn how to flex some of the aspects of yourself you learn how to see you know what works and what doesn't and what does that mean? Well, it can sometimes mean that you struggle with your kind of your self-identity amongst that because you're continually flexing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're black, you're more likely to be torn, please, right? And it's just little things like that. But also because I'm, because I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not the most light-skinned, right? But at the same time, I've not been pulled over that many times by law, law enforcement, for example. I've not been stopped and searched as many times as some people that I know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, those those snap judgments, I get less of those. Right. Uh, yeah. There's so many different facets to it, you know. Yeah, Alicia. yeah, yeah, but, I can imagine. But, but fundamentally for me, looking and navigating two cultures helps you to do that in a world that is really multicultural. Yeah. And it makes you open because suddenly you'll build a more diverse network. You understand other people's experiences and you realise that, like you said, you might have two people that sit at the exact same intersections all around that wheel of intersectionality, but they're really different personalities and different people. Yeah. And, you know, our characteristics don't 100% make us. Fundamentally, that's who you are as a person, right? But you will sit at those, and understanding of where you sit helps you to navigate a complex world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a really, really good explanation, very in detail as well. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. Um. So you mentioned that you have a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable speaking about that? Yeah, always. So and, and when that kind of came about, so so what is the chronic illness? And uh, uh, so it's autoimmune arthritis. And oh, wow. what's, okay. cra- what's crazy is that I was absolutely fine for the first 29 years of my life. And, you know, never had any issues. The only time I'd ever been in hospital is when I'd like hurt myself on a glass bauble when I was like 18 months old. So I, I was fit, I was healthy, I was running my tech business at the time. You know, my son was 18 months old. My daughter was, you know, going to be born in a few months. And all of a sudden, my immune system started to attack my body. So my wrist blew up and I thought, have I banged it? Out of nowhere? Out of nowhere. And I thought, have I banged it? I, was like, I don't know, but it started to like swell up all around here. It's like, it's a Friday afternoon, I was like, I'll go to doctors over the weekend, like if if it's if it's still a problem. Mm. Then on on Sunday, my knee started to lock in place, and it felt hot, and it started to grow, and I was like, Oh, oh my! Crap. Went to the doctors on Monday morning, hobbled my way in, 
give me some steroids. Said, if you don't go down by Wednesday, come back. By Tuesday, my shoulder was up by my ear. My other knee started to go. But it's up by your ear. Yeah, so literally the swelling all around here oh meant my that my shoulder was goodness. up here. Um, and my other knee started to go, so I couldn't walk. So my mother-in-law literally dragged me into the car, took me to A&E. And that kind of started a month in hospital. Fluid being drained off my joints. They're trying to work out, you know, was it something hereditary or something in my genes? Didn't test for any of the things that they knew, so no. They were checking to see if I if I'd had some kind of virus or bacterial infection that yeah. had set it off and confused my immune system, but they couldn't find anything there. They kind of like were testing like my stress levels and stuff like that, seeing if it was like massively stress induced. But you know, they didn't test that particularly early, so they weren't sure of that either. So I ended up in the kind of the bucket of autoimmune arthritis, which is your immune system is attacking your joints or some type of tissue. We don't know why, but the treatment's the same. Will just suppress your immune system, and through that, I couldn't walk. The amount of damage it had done to my knees, I couldn't. I couldn't wait there. I couldn't stand up, so I had to learn to walk again. So that was a journey. <laughs> How long could you not walk for? Um, so it took me eleven months to go from it starting to walking a mile without any kind of walking aids. So I had to. I had to that go. Must have had a massive. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. A massive impact on your life. Yeah, so I mean, for me, it was it was tough. I mean, I had my business, which luckily as a tech business, a lot of it was digital, so I could continue to run it. Also, having that business, and that business had grown quite quickly over that five years, mm. it meant that financially I was I was stable, so I didn't have to worry about ending up on statistic pay and not being able to pay for my mortgage or mm. provide for my family. So I had a lot of, you know, stress taken away. Mm. I had a support network, you know, to help me do the basic things, like, you know, when, when, when something like this happens, you can't shower yourself, you can't go to the toilet, you can't can't go and do the very basic things that you used to. So you yeah. need people to support you. And I had that. Uh, and naturally when this happened, at first I was like, why me? Why now? Yeah. And all those feelings of like, this is a terrible time. Like my daughter's going to be born in a few months and I'm like, t- I'm planning to take all this time off work. And I'm like completely flat out yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in a hospital bed, like... Wow. off my face on tramadol and oromorph um because the pains it's just intense and it feels like my body's burning but through all of that like after after a month i got discharged from hospital like did went into walking rehab intensive physio hydrotherapy learned to walk again my daughter's born during that period i'm committed i'm going to get back on my feet so that by the time my daughter's walking i can take her first steps with her that's what drove me to get back on my feet you know that is again like what was in my mind when I was struggling I had a few setbacks once with my back then once with my walking gait mm. not being right uh, but I was determined and those setbacks wouldn't didn't stop me because I had a bigger vision and a bigger purpose mm. not just getting back healthy but actually getting back so I could do things with my kids so that drove yeah. me through those difficult times I really think that is a beautiful even though it it I guess the initiation of that well, it wasn't great and it was yeah. quite painful, but the journey and the mental determination you had, the physical determination you had, that's a massive life change. I don't think anyone ever, ever thinks that that mm-hmm. could happen to them. No. And you had that at such a massive point of your life. So kudos to you for just pushing through because that must have been really difficult. How do you feel when you reflect upon that? Yeah, so, I mean, it, the, the truth is it was hard. Yeah. And it took me those first few weeks to process 
like all those negative emotions I was feeling. Mm. Spoke to people, I journaled them out of my head. Mm. I got them down. But what I realised is later on in hospital and looking out the window, I realised that actually I'd never truly been grateful for walking and now I've lost it. Mm. And that moment stuck with me because then I realised, you know what, like, you grew up in the UK, mm. you've had free, you're getting free healthcare, you've had free education. Never been, be never been hungry, never been homeless, got clean water, you know, you've got freedom to set up a business, you're not worrying about paying your mortgage or supplying for your family, actually, look at everything you should be grateful for, and don't sit here wallowing it, go and get yourself back on your feet, yeah. so that's how I felt, and how I reflect back now, like nine years later, and I'm 70% physically of what I was, and that's about as good as it will get, mm. I'm 200% mentally, because of how I navigated that, what I learned, how I kind of found acceptance mm. that I can't change it, but committed to actually getting back on my feet and looking after my health. Mm. Uh, but the biggest thing for me, Alicia, is that I see that as happening for me, not to me. Mm. It happened for me. It was big adversity, right? But that has massively shaped my life going forward. It's massively shaped what I value. Mm. It's changed my definition of success. Mm. And actually... A lot of people bumble the way through life and until like the partner dies or they lose the job or they you know, someone close to them gets a serious illness, they don't stop and think, What impact do I want to make on the world? Exactly. You know, what what am I destined to do? Yeah. What can I do to make a difference? Mm. You know, what's actually important for me? What does success look like? Mm. And the truth is when you're wiped out and you're in that deep hole, that's when you see. You know, you find those little threads of purpose across your life. Mm. You find what, what makes a difference to you, what means something, what do you want to go and leave the world with? If you don't, you know, if you were to, you know, die. Exactly. You know, what would what would your legacy be? Exactly. And it's like, I realised that in that situation and took a step back and that has changed my pathway. That made me become a stay-at-home dad for three and a half years. Really took me back to how I felt with my own parents and mm. made me make that decision and commit to that before my children started school. I am going to be here every day with them, and I'm going to build that bond. I'm going to see all the firsts, mm. and I'm just going to, you know, I'm never going to get that time back in money, never going to get that time back in the future. Uh, and when the teenagers, they won't even want to know me. So it's like, <laughs> so it's like, spend it's that time now. They'll be at school, and you won't see them that much. Uh, so that shaped me to do that. And that experience, you know, hearing the stuff about how women were being treated in the workplace, in parent and toddler groups and stuff like that, you know, shape my work it's also made me think about you know how being a present and active father is a great role model into my own kids right. about what manhood masculinity can look like mm. and that can actually be being a stay-at-home dad it can while you know running a business and making an impact for others mm. and obviously when my daughter started school that's when I set all the business that I run today amazing that's such a beautiful kind of intro into that, but I want to—I still want to reel it back because uh -huh, we haven't spoken back. about your um, your journey after you locked yourself, and then you stopped university and you re revisited university again and went on to build your tech business. Um, so just kind of going back a little bit again, yeah. as you can see, everyone in here, I've got a very stag stagmented way of interviewing. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone that everyone that listens to the podcast knows that I jump a little bit and I go up and down because I just. Go with the energy. Yeah. So um, just, I know I'm conscious of time. So, it's all so, so it's all yeah, good. okay. So in regards to your career journey then, let's yeah. go back to, so you, you stopped university because of your mental health. Yeah. What did you do in that time period and, and how did you get back back on your feet again? Yeah, so I spent a year at home. 
Okay. And that year at home was kind of working on myself and working on some of those patterns in my head, right? So I realized that I might not have those role models, mm. but what's going to stop me being the first? And I thought the only barrier to being that was myself. Mm. I started to see some of this like internal like monologue in my head, like saying you failed, you know, you've dropped out, you've not, you've not been the, the role model to your brothers and stuff. Like that. And I realized actually I wasn't a failure, right? Mm. I just not applied myself and mm. not like not 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 made it happen in a way that was possible mm. and i realized actually i need to do a bit of work on myself but work on my own mindset get a bit clearer and actually go back and apply myself properly so i realized that i was you know i was skimming too much i wasn't going deep enough and i kind of saw that i also spent some of that time becoming more self-aware and emotionally intelligent mm. so i started to work on that kind of thing so i felt more comfortable kind of expressing myself exploring myself mm. went back after that year and found the university experience a lot more beneficial because I just felt mm. like I'd grown up right. a lot. You took some time out. I, yeah, and I felt more mature and more mm. able to handle some of the challenges. So I graduated in 07. It's like, wow, great. Right at the top of the economic cycle. And I get onto a grad scheme at a national bank, right? So I'm like, well, this is it. That's this, amazing. This is it, you know, a profession. Mum and dad take me out, get me first work suit. It's like, well done, son. You know, like you've made it. So I go start working at a national bank in September or seven. Doing what? What did you do there? Uh, so it was like a corporate finance grad scheme. Okay. So it was trying to get into an area where there weren't many, there weren't many people of colour, and I felt like you know I felt like I'd done quite well, one of sixteen grads on the program. Mm. Uh, but obviously in two thousand and seven, it wasn't the best time to go into finance. Because right. only a few months later, Lehman Brothers happened, and then the credit crunch hit in the recession. And yeah, all of a sudden, all those people who were training, all those senior people who were kind of sat around, they all started to pack the desks up and leave because lots of people wow. got made redundant because of the credit crunch in any bank or financial institution. Okay. And what that meant is after eight months, we all got made redundant as grad students. So we all lost our grad scheme, got pulled. Oh no. Because there just wasn't the space for us to go into. Wow, and they, that's they were, crazy. They, they were looking and thinking, you know, given the current situation, you are going to be sat on this grad scheme for years until we can, until there's anywhere for you to go. That's not helpful. Um, and the truth is, you know, professional training budget came with that, thousands of pounds that got pulled before that anywhere. I was like, am I going to afford this? Like, it was tough. And I, I ended up back home at mum and dad's house, dead moved house, thinking I wasn't coming back. So I ended up in the boiler room, the back of the house, Enough to fit, you know, couldn't fit a single bed frame in because of the shape of the room. So I had a mattress and a clothes room. In, in the boiler room? Yeah, so it was like a back bedroom that had a boiler in. And there was a cupboard built around the boiler. And what that meant is it was like, it was quite a small room. But having that boiler cupboard meant that you couldn't fit a single bed frame in. Because it took a square out of the room. Right. and meant it, it was like a it was like a square, know, but then I, a hall, like a hallway because of the boiler cupboard. So it could squidge a single mattress up against the wall. So it kind of, you could just about fit, but a frame wouldn't. So I used to sleep, it was a mattress on the floor, and I had a clothes rail. And that's what I went back home to, right? Wow. Uh, which was tough again. I felt like a bit like, man, I got this vision, I was gonna, I was gonna go and build a career, and now it's gone. Uh, but very quickly, you know, what I did is realize, okay, so some of your colleagues, you know, people you work with, mm. they got 25 careers in finance. They got more letters after the name than the alphabet with all these accreditations they got, right? Mm. They've got mortgages, they've got families, they've got kids at private school, they've got, you know, holidays, they've booked, they've got cars on finance. And all of a sudden, like, I went in, I'd go in and they'd be like packing the desk up, like redundant, you know? Catch up with them. 
like a few weeks later, there's just, there's just no jobs. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. And I realised, like, you know, I just started. And some people who I'd got to know and met over that journey mm. were leveraged up big time mm. and couldn't get into work. Mm. And it's like, I actually realised I need to be grateful because, again, redundancy ain't great. Mm. It's no fun. Yeah, it, it takes away your dreams and your ambitions, right? But at least I've not got 25 years and can't get a job doing what I'm skilled in. Exactly. Um, so I kind of hit that kind of point of, you know, gratitude again. Where I just thought, you know what? Just be grateful this this mm. this hasn't happened so late. But thinkly, these economic cycles, they come and go. Exactly, yeah. Why don't you build something where you can control aspects where you can get some help for the things that you struggle with and actually when the economic winds blow you're in you're in control and you can make decisions to hopefully keep it floating right mm. so i went working in local government because i needed some money uh, and used the wages from that to seed the video game business and what was that so it started as an e-commerce business kind of ultimately selling on marketplaces uh around video games so we were kind of like a reseller to start with mm. we then used the funds from that to actually build some risk price risk pricing software and started to sell that what is risk pricing price software so probably the best way to describe it is if you are a company who's buying a product mm. you are looking at the risks of buying a product at a certain price point uh, you're looking at market trends you're looking at information and right. we, we were able to start to look at what we did because fundamentally games reviewers would change the price of games right games would come out at an rip and they come out at an, like a new release price uh and in the old days if a game got reviewed quite badly in the magazines they might lower the price by five or ten quid because yeah. it got a bit of a hammering right well what we did is we plugged into like the sentiment on the internet towards games and worked out that actually a lot of reviews now were online it was the very start of like video game influencers. Right. We were looking and trying to work out if someone says this game's really good, how much is that influencing the price on platforms? Mm. So we were helping companies start to kind of plug that data in and understand, okay, so if we buy this game at this much per unit, fundamentally, what is the risk that it might, you know, because the big games, right, and if they got really negatively, you know, reviewed, they might suddenly be 20 quid cheaper. And if you've got thousands and thousands of stock of this and you bought it quite high and the price drops out, you're in a bad place. Right, I see. So it's like we were helping to reduce those risks in the industry. Oh, and we'd only, okay. we'd only kind of, we'd learned that through testing ourselves. Okay. We actually started to help other, other smaller retailers and e-tails with it. Right, I see. So okay. we ended up with two kind of parts of the business. And that grew over time, you know, over that five years. We were, I mean, it took off quickly because we were in the right place at the right time. But that, that business started in, my, in that bedroom, that tiny little bedroom. Took over my mum and dad's house. And oh, you took over what, off, office-wise? Well, it literally, the, the whole house became, like, the business. My mum and dad's driveway got destroyed by incoming and outgoing deliveries. And after 18 months, I had enough money to buy my first house from nowhere. After 18 months? Yeah. So from nowhere, from nothing. How did you find your, your customers? How did you market? Like, where, like, what was the steps in you actually becoming successful? Because the idea is great. Anyone can have a really, a billion pound idea. But yeah. what was the implementation process? Yeah, so, I mean, interestingly, it was my first business. 
and I kind of created a bit of a forecast, a bit of a plan, looking at the market opportunity aspect, we realised that it was, wasn't the easiest to drive traffic to your own site. Mm. Um, but you could utilise understandable ways to do that. So we used marketplaces. We tried eBay as a marketplace to try and drive traffic through. Some were buying eBay. We then kind of label to, if you next time you're buying, come to, come to us. So we tried that and we found that eBay eBay didn't, you know, people return back to eBay again okay. rather than buying directly. Right, but, but we started to use Playtrade and Amazon Marketplace. Okay. So we're kind of utilising those marketplaces to, as a, to lower the barriers to entry, mm. but to drive our own traffic through the e-commerce aspect. Mm. And that gradually started to, you know, as people started to buy games online, mm. started to not only increase our kind of profit and our drive, but started to intre- increase our traffic. Mm. Uh, and that kind of gives us space to, you know, because... I suppose when I reflect back, we did very, very little external marketing. We were very much focused on how can we use the bigger players to piggyback on uh, to be able to get traction ourselves. Because, mm. you know, when you're starting up, you want to keep your cost low, right? Right. And, you know, within the industry, we were never going to outmarket game. We're never going to outmarket these massive platforms. Because okay. they had massive ad spend, right? Right. But we could use their marketplaces to kind of stealth market. And that's uh, what we did. That's... <laughs> That's a really smart way. So similar to kind of drop shipping a little bit. Yeah, well, but, right? but I think that we still pr- provided the product through the marketplace. Right, okay. But then we used that sale as a chance to get people to think about coming to us first. So, and it promoted that kind of continuous custom, but also made them think, actually, you know, I've bought this from here. I got it really quickly. I got great customer service on the platform. You know, maybe next time I won't go to Amazon. Maybe I'll go directly to them. What's the what's what's the difference in fees or what percentage do they take of your profit? Amazon? Um, it it comp- it continued to change, continued to vary different categories, but generally they were skimming at least fee, you know they were skimming fifteen percent at a point in time, which you had to find things with margin, and that's where the risk price software was helping us to find things with big enough margin to be able to absorb that hit, right, to then try and get people. So we take the margin if they come through us. Right, I see. So with with the risk price software, can you do it for anything or was it specifically for video games? Uh, so it was specifically focused on video games. Okay. Simply because we were able to kind of, that, that was get our the niche. information. That okay. was our niche. Got you. And we managed to work out, you know, or managed to get a level of clarity on where on the internet reviews would be that might right. impact get games. And then we start to look at, say, reviews that buyers were leaving on Amazon. Got you, I see. And how that star racing would start to maybe impact how Amazon moved up and down in pricing. Because Amazon had like a fluid pricing model. They would price match other other competitors. Mm. So we started to look at what they were doing. Because if I'm brutally honest, they were spending millions of pounds on these algorithms to work out how to how to beat the competitors. Right. And we were like, how can we as a tiny little company understand what they're doing and replicate that to support way. to support others? As a, as a yeah. effectively like software as a service, right? Yeah. So that's crazy. I, I would never think of that as a business model, but again, you're never going to think of all the business models. But it's good that you thought of that and it managed to sustain you and and everything over the years. Really, really impressive. Very impressive, especially as your first business and enabling you to buy a house in eighteen yeah. months as well. So what what I kind of draw from that, I always like to to do like key takeaways from that particular situation. So you found your niche. Mm-hmm. You understood it, so you, you researched your market. Yep. 
um, it looks as if you spent time in understanding and understanding where you can make the most money. Yep. Where that was. We have to find. You have to find the margins. Opportunity. Yeah. Yep. Like keeping your cost initially low. Yep. As well. So kind of being a bit thrifty with how you go about things. What What was the size of your team? Uh, so gradually we grew up to twenty one. Twenty one. But yeah. in the first eighteen months, how how? In the first eighteen months, I kind of recruited my two younger brothers and my parents. They were they were, they were the first people as like de facto employees. Amazing. And I remember on on the first Christmas, we had like a supply line going through the house. Amazing. Picking and packing. Um, so you can imagine like me, my two brothers and my mum and dad are up to like one o'clock in the morning fulfilling orders. Amazing. So that's, that's you it, that's you it, had your whole family that, working that, with that's, you. That's how it started. I love that. And so many, so many businesses start on a, on a kitchen table or in a yeah. back bedroom and people are chipping in. I mean, this is in my, this is in my home. Well, exactly. <laughs> We've got a creative studio right here. But, yeah, but so many true. things start like that. And you know what? I was still working in that council job for the first two and a half years. As, as well as doing the business as yeah. well. And probably longer. But I was working a nine to five and I'll be brutally honest, working nine to five in local government, you know, wasn't that taxing um but you struggle to really understand the success that you're having like i did i didn't suddenly feel like this like entrepreneur like i was balling i was like this i'm just building something and any point could be taken away and i could be back to like where i was before yeah. with like nothing yeah so it took me a long time and in fact my own success kind of started to snowball and actually i was quite scared of that success Why? it was like chasing me because yeah. I, I became more responsible I was responsible for a team. Yeah. I was responsible for their livelihoods. I was responsible for every decision that I made had an impact on others. Uh, and to be honest, I was in my mid-20s, right? Yeah. I didn't have a lot of life experience. Yeah. Uh, I'd spent eight months out in industry and I'd been working at a local government, which wasn't entrepreneurial at all, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. I was like going and taking ideas to like, you know, chief, chiefs of services and they were looking at me like, you're a junior employee, like what are you talking about? Mm. And then I'm like thinking in the back of my head, like I'm, I'm running a business that like is turning over more than your, you know, more than your department. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like I'm a junior employee, right? So you're not going to listen. I've got, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all of a story. And it was an interesting place to be as I was building a business because people were like, people started to see him were like, holy crap, like he's going somewhere. Um, but for all that, right, I was, mm. I was doubted by other people. And this is one of the biggest things that drove me, right? So I'd, I'd been to Manchester and I managed to get a 30-minute meeting with someone who had two successful businesses. He was white, was in his 50s, and I got 30 minutes in his diary. And that was just by being, like... Proactive. Proactive, being curious and, right. you know, not being afraid to ask. Asked quite a few people and they said, no. Of course, like, that's the nature. I yeah. asked someone last night if they do podcasts and um, they say they don't. They only do it for, pod- for people that... Um, they're friends with and I said okay cool that's fine like a part of this journey is ask you're gonna get no's yep you're gonna get yeses yep. you're gonna get not right now's uh-huh like you can't take it personal you just have yeah. to keep 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 going and I and I also feel like sometimes if things align they will align at yeah. some point yeah you know yeah and I'd say don't be scared to ask yeah but go and be clear with what you're asking exactly so do your research because, you know, like I reflect back and people will ask you, oh, can you mentor me? And it's like, well, yeah, I'll consider it. But if you come to me and say, look, I, I've seen that you've done this, Lee. This is what I'm looking to do. These are the problems that I've had when I've tried. Can you give me some advice about how you navigated that? Mm. I'll be like, yeah, let's have a chat. 
run f- I'll run through how it worked for me, how it didn't work. Mm. All good. I'm happy to impart that advice. Mm. When someone drops a message and, and without that specifics, people are just like, I don't have time. Mm. Like, we're incredibly busy. We don't have time for people who are really fluffy in what they're asking. Exactly. Be yeah. really specific with what you're asking. So I know if I can help or yeah, yeah. refer you and somewhere else. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, I've got a network, a network of people who probably might have it. But if you don't ask, I have no idea exactly. who to sign Porsche to. But I went and got 30 minutes in with someone who's got two successful businesses. Yeah. He sat me down. I had my I had my, my binder out with my forecasts, my market opportunities, matrix. You know, I had kind of, I, 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 I prepared. I put it down and I talked him through it. And he sat there, right? And he sat there and he said to me at the end, he said, you know what, Lee? It's good, this. It's Amazing. Got, it's got legs. Watertight, forecasts are realistic, market opportunities there. But, Lee, you're young, you're black, got a bit of an attitude problem, you've got no network, you're not getting any investment. Go out into industry, smooth your rough edges, build a network, gain some influence, and then give it a try. And did you listen to him? Yeah. And then and all of that worked? Well, no, I went out into industry on my grad scheme and got spat out. Oh, yeah, so... And then ended up working at the, work, working at the council and was like, nah, this can't be, this can't wow. be life. There's, yeah. there's, there's council lifers right here who've been working here for 35 years. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, like that, that's just not me. Wait a minute, I've got this business. This, this guy, you know, he said it'll work. I'm going to go and do it. And that's what I did. Good for you. Good for you. And and does that business still exist today or did you uh, um, so close that down? It was no, it was acquired by a much bigger business. Amazing. So you sold it. So yeah. And that's incredible. Well, I mean, it was a journey. And the thing is, after I got unwell and then became a stay-at-home dad, I actually took myself operationally out of the business Amazing. and just kind of sat in a strategic advisory role uh, while spending all that time. So I became a little bit detached from it in some ways. I went yeah. from constantly in it to not being in it in the same way but you still made money from it well yeah Yeah. and the fact is i still own some equity in it yeah but i think the big thing was i actually got out of the way and it was a better business for it (laughs) but but that's 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 incredible it's always the way and i and i look at that as well and probably downplay but those first five years were fueled from fueled from those who doubted me right yeah proven them wrong that mentor other people who said building a business good for you you building a business like go and get a career you're a kid. Like, yeah. what, what are you doing? Yeah. And this is, you know, 15 years ago, entrepreneurship wasn't glamorous and it wasn't cool. And you didn't have people posting on social media who weren't making any money, but pretending that they do. Yeah. Um, there, you know, there was none of that. It was like being an entrepreneur was uh, seen as like a risky thing to do. And especially if you were, didn't have, you know, rich uncles, you yeah. were seen as taking a massive risk because you didn't have a safety net. I didn't have a safety net. Man, I couldn't fail. <laughs> and that puts, that puts pressure on you. But that doubt and running my business from wanting to prove other people wrong mm. meant that I didn't actually learn as much as I could have. Mm. And I, wasn't, I didn't open myself up to as many opportunities because I was focused on proving people wrong. Mm. When I got ill, I came out the other side and realised it's not about proving people wrong. It's about taking people on the journey with you and leaving a legacy, making a difference and exactly. getting out of your own way. And that's what I've kind of taken into my second business journey. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot different this time. 
Amazing. I love the fact that you, again, it was still a success and mm-hmm. you, you still benefited from it and it's outlived you. To, to build something that can outlive you is phenomenal it's very rare so you've already put that legendary stamp down um already but i want to get on to what you're doing today and what you're doing yep. now as well so so tell us about the work that you're doing um at the moment oh geez where do i even start <laughs> so I do, I do quite a lot of public speaking and i really enjoy that you know i'm speaking on topics across the diversity inclusion and well-being landscape i talk a lot about things like menopause and menstruation getting other men engaged in that conversation especially men in marginalized communities we never talk about these things mm. but you know our families our colleagues our friends our you know our partners are going through that kind of stuff mm. we need to have those conversations we need to be brave mm. talk about black mental health mm. you know we we face a lot of challenges in society we don't open up and talk like i said earlier i didn't go to therapy until 2016 right mm. last year i spoke to the bbc about that because you know we need to get other black men there's nothing wrong with going to therapy Look, and I know we live in a world where you feel like, you know, you have to you have you have you have to have it all together, right? You know, you see that kind of thing as weak. You know, some of us some of us live in those gang cultures, right? As soon as you show a bit of weakness, you, you you're vulnerable. But actually in the real world we've got to open up and speak about the stuff that's going on in our head. You know, we've lost too many young black men because they couldn't open up and talk about the struggles. So I'm really passionate about that. You know, work with businesses, we do a lot around allyship how to be an ally to other groups, Amazing. how to support people who haven't got lesser opportunities. You know, that helps to drive inclusive leadership. It improves businesses' outcomes, you know, both in terms of well-being, in terms of performance and profitability, uh, helps you to retain your employees. Mm. Mm. So, you know, my company is a lot in that well-being space. We look at black mental health. We look at, you know, engaging men in women's health. We look at neurodiversity mm. and how, you know, small accommodations can make a massive difference to people's health. Uh, I'm on a number of different boards that I, you know, learn a lot from. And yeah, fundamentally, whether we're offering training programs and pathways for organisations, mm. whether I'm coming in and speaking to employees and sharing elements of the, some of the story that you've heard here mm. uh, to, you know, showcase some of the lessons that I've learned on the journey. Right. Um, but involved in, in numerous different things, always right at the cutting edge, always looking at things intersectionally. And yeah, gradually building a business that's going to make a difference. Amazing. Amazing. That sounds so, so impactful. And it's inspirational because I'm in a similar line of work, like I mentioned mm. to you before offline. Yeah. So it's, it's good to hear that someone else is doing it and making it happen as well. How are you finding the impact or, I guess, trying to implement what you're doing this year? Because I feel like there was an influx of interest in 2020 mm. and um, there was the DEI, the DEI budgets were created out of thin air. And then things have changed a little bit. What's, what's been your experience of that? Um, how have organisations been investing or not investing? Yeah, so I mean, I think the truth is organisations are still investing. Uh, if we look honestly about the wider DEI promises, especially for the black community, the hell of a lot of promises after the death of George Floyd, a lot of attention, that has been dying off. You know, companies are always looking at different strands of diversity. I'll be brutally honest, a lot of companies want to look good, but do they want to do the real hard culture transformational work? That's long-term stuff. And it's not always easy to get buy-in. But but I suppose my thing is about what are the drivers and levers we can pull? And for me, you know, I work in inclusive wellbeing. So sometimes it's coming in from that wellbeing aspect. Sometimes it's coming in for the more inclusion-based aspect. It's really sharing the experiences and the stories to compel people to action. Mm. It's getting people to realise that actually, 
you know, this is fundamentally good for business, but we will measure it to showcase the impact that it's had. Mm. And I f- we found it easier because a lot of companies are coming to us. They're not coming for DEI and they're not coming for well-being. They're actually coming because we've got a specific problem. Right. It's about retaining people. We're not retaining our good people. It's costing us a fortune to recruit. We're not attracting the right people. That's the problem they're solving. We, we, yeah, we've not got a good employee value proposition. People are coming to interview and asking, what are you doing for people's health? And it's like... They haven't got an answer. Yeah, they yeah. haven't got... Yeah, so it's yeah. like, we're actually looking, what do businesses need and what problems have they got? Because mm. the truth is, you can get budget when you can identify a problem. Mm. And the challenge is, in the very busy world and ever-growing world of DAI and well-being, mm. so many different solutions... So many different people offering all sorts of different things. It's a lot. But fundamentally, businesses will look to fund things that help them solve a problem. Mm. And if you can showcase how you do that, showcase how you've done it previously, showcase how, some of the challenges that you face doing it, mm. you will eventually get people to realise that you are the organisation that can support mm. them with this problem and on this journey. And, you know, again, it's a, it's really about kind of you have to have proof of concept in what you're doing. You have to have, you know, really evolved you're, you're pro- right, yeah. products and services. Yeah. You can't, you, I mean, a minimum viable product or a minimum viable service is what you should have at the start. Yeah. But you need pilots to shape that to become yeah. a really rounded service that is effective, that can continually be agile for the world that we live in today. Yeah. And, you know, we're always evolving this year. One of our focuses has been building inclusive leadership and allyship sessions into existing companies uh, high potential and high growth and emerging leader programs because a lot of companies are now thinking right so what do we need to teach our leaders of the future and inclusive leadership and allyship is a big part of the future of leadership you need to understand how other people work you need to understand how to include other people to get those voices to actually be a leader who is relevant in this world <coughs> so it's really you know we're kind of lots and thought we can retrofit what we do into that so we've done that for the likes of you know very MS, pwc Irish software, you know, we, we've worked with Oracle, you know, KPMG, we've worked with a mm. lot of companies doing that. Mm. And it's like, you've got to find what organisations need because you know, a lot of business people, a lot of passionate people in DEI, right? Mm. Lived experience is great for telling a story, but when you go to a company, you're actually fundamentally working for that company. Yeah. And they want to see outcomes. They want to know yeah, exactly. what, what you're changing and... You know, your lived experience can blind you sometimes yeah. to intersectional realities of other people yeah. and blind you to the fact that companies work like an ecosystem. And you've got to work within that ecosystem. Exactly. It's got to yeah. be sports that company. And the truth is your journey is really powerful, but that doesn't give you the skills to transform cultures, to build strategies, to execute and evolve services, mm. you know, to deliver effective training. These are all skills. You've exactly. got to go and build them. And yeah. the best people use data to showcase that and really have the effective and the right people on that journey with them. So how do you measure, I guess, the impact of your workshops and your talks and everything as well? What's your method of, of doing that? Yeah, so quite often if a workshop's about a specific topic, mm. we will have at the start understanding people's sentiment towards it. We'll then measure that at the end to see where understanding shifted, for example. Uh, for, for bigger projects, we'll actually measure a series of metrics right at the start of the project to benchmark where an organisation's at. And then halfway through that, say, training pathway or program, we will measure that again. So there's aspects of, like, are, are the people who are engaging in the program mm. benefiting? 
We also then mirror that back to people in the organisation who are not in the programme to see if they're seeing things changing. Right, I see. Because that then shows, actually, is there a gap between those on the programme thinking they are doing something but actually not doing it back in the organisation day to day. We'll also then attach and we're looking at, you know, what is the outcome of this for the organisation we're working for? Because quite often you'll speak with senior leadership, you know, the CFO wants, you know, efficiencies in something or an addition to a, a, a kind of a bottom line somewhere else. They've got they've got a metric target, that's their job, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, someone in operations will be thinking more about efficiency and functionality and, mm. you know, acquiring, acquiring you know, new clients through being able to showcase this. Mm. You know, someone in marketing will be looking at thinking, right, well, we need to be able to, you know, actually put out there what we're doing in an effective way. We need to sharpen up our comms around this. Uh, we need to use it to kind of, you know, start to attract more. And we need to showcase through our metrics that it's working mm. and we put this out internally and externally. You know, so you've got different stakeholders who want different things. We'll build those KPIs into what we do so we can show how they've increased. Or if if they've not, we'll actually look, well, how can we evolve what we're doing so that they do? Exactly. And it's like having that continued understanding that businesses work around a set of metrics. And ultimately, usually you are brought in to try and move a metric in a certain direction, right? Exactly. And you ultimately have to use the business acumen that you have to work with the businesses that you want to make the difference. And that's how you can actually make a difference for employees at scale. That makes really, really good sense. And it's, it's, a, it's a practical approach, actually, that you're, that you're taking. Because I've spoken to so many DEI professionals and consultants, and a lot of them have been struggling to get mm-hmm. on clients. And just, just, just to echo your point, I've realised that my success in acquiring new clients has been around impact results, practical approaches as well, um, to what they can, what you can physically change. So... With training that um, I usually deliver, I always like to break it down and add actions yep. to it as well and measure those actions over a long period of time. And that is where I've seen a higher success rate versus just, like what you said, just talking about my journey and my experiences all the time. You know, it's great to hear it sometimes, but if we're paying you... <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, I guess... Um, it's a whole other conversation about black people not being paid for re-traumatising themselves, sharing the story. Um, but fundamentally, you know, we, we're, we're out there and, yeah, your own lived experience is a powerful driver to engage people, but you've got to engage them into actions. Exactly. And those actions, takeaways, practical things they can do yeah. need to be part of it because it's like you don't learn a new language if you don't do the practical stuff. Exactly. You can have someone come in and talk to you all day in that language. If you don't actually go and practice it, like you're not going to learn it. And it's like anything True, in this yeah. area is around, you actually learn it by going doing it and embedding it in your day-to-day life in the workplace. Yeah. And that increased exposure to it, increasingly doing it, mentoring others and being reciprocally mentored to help you develop that is really important. And that's that's what, you know, we form part of our programmes is to mm. give that accountability and mentoring for people who decide to engage in it. It makes a massive difference. Uh, but fundamentally, you know, there's a lot of people in the industry with a really good heart we want to really make a change, but it's difficult. But wonderful. But yeah, it sounds, so it sounds like you're doing some really good work. So honestly, like well done, hats off to you for initiating this, for having the impact that you have. Um, is there anything, any advice that you would give to community members that are listening at the moment that want to, I guess, that feel alone at the moment? They feel like they don't know what direction they should be taken with their life. Is there any words of wisdom or advice you'd like to share with anyone? Yeah, so I think the first one is I'm 38 and I've still not got it all worked out. 
Yeah. It might sound like it, but everyone is winging it in life and working the way. <laughs> and you yeah. know what? It, you, we're in a world now where it, it wasn't the same case when I was younger. You know, we didn't have social media. We didn't have all these people making it look like they're doing all sorts of great things, but behind the scenes they're falling apart. Mm. So, you know, you just appreciate that you are unique. You know, there's uh, find trusted people in your network to speak to. Everyone has those people. Mm. And actually, whether it's journaling some of those thoughts and kind of seeing them on paper, yeah. whether it's finding, you know, someone who kind of gets it. Or, you know, we live in an in a ever-interconnected world, but a lot of people feel lonely because they've not got those deep connections with people. Yeah. So, you know, search for that good quality connection. Uh, but find purpose, you know. You don't find it in a book. You don't find it when, you know, you stood there pondering about life. You find it through doing things. Go and do things. Go and do new things that get you a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. And through every experience in your life, you will find things that you really enjoy, mm -hmm. things that you don't like. Yeah. And that'll give you more ideas and more little threads to understand, you know, what's meaningful, enjoyable, and can make a difference for you. Exactly, exactly. That's really, really good advice. Thank you for, for sharing that. And that then goes on to also say, remember Black Create Connect started as a, as a WhatsApp group and we are a community. So people talk, we've got like almost 700 people in a WhatsApp group now, which it might be overwhelming actually because my friend that um, has autism, he came out. <laughs> he, yeah. he left the group. He was like, it's too active. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> too, yeah. too many people. <laughs> so, um, so it's not for everybody, but it is that safe space community where you can answer a question, where you can talk to someone, you can find someone to connect with, build those deeper connections in person at events. It's so important. It's made a massive impact to my journey as well so I'm a, I'm a testament to what you've said um but keep doing what you're doing really really proud of you lee like well done thank you for your time um and thank you for coming on the black create connect podcast yeah black create connect let's keep going let's keep going amazing well thank you for listening everyone remember to share rate the podcast like it subscribe um, and i'll leave all of the information about lee in the podcast description so you can connect find out more and if you want to bring him into your company bring him in i'm not a selfish dei consultant if you think he's better for your organization and you think he's gonna you know bring a completely different lens which he will bring him in or bring us in together either either or team let's do teamwork but anyway thank you so much everyone and i'll see you soon take care